Welcome to Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. And I'm Matt Henry. And we are re-recording. Apparently it was my fault. Yeah, apparently your, uh, your, your microphone kept hitting something, and so there was a ticking noise. So we're doing this again. I'm not convinced it was my microphone. I'm thinking it's my chair, but we'll see. I'm going to try to sit still and not touch the microphone, nor rock. Yeah, you could just <laughs> remain quiet over there. Yes, sir. I, I'll be quiet then. Um, so we, uh, we're going to we're redoing this one. We're still on the figures of revival. Uh, so last time we did Jonathan Edwards. Today we're going to do uh, George Whitfield. And so this is a sub-series because um, we were just talking about revival versus revivalism right. uh, quite a while ago. And so we decided to give a little bit of history of it. And so our goal with this is to bring out historical development of revival, but for the goal of seeing how history is critical and understanding how contemporary theology and practice has been shaped. And the fact is a lot of churches do a lot of things due to tradition, uh, and yet they're not always aware of why they do what they do. And we said the answer to that is simply history. Uh, And when it comes to the whole topic of revival and revivalism, we have found that this is certainly the case. So we started our first episode last time with the first Great Awakening, and our plan is to just keep working through onto the second great awakening and then the various revivals that occurred up through the 20th century. But for now, we're still on the first great awakening. Uh, last time was Jonathan Edwards, who was that first great theologian on the whole topic of revival. He was very formative and was the primary architect of how the church has thought about revival over the past 300 years. Um, but he is certainly not the only one. Many key figures have shaped the thinking on revival, and, and many of them in very dramatically different ways. So today we're going to continue on, and the next formative figure is George Whitfield. But before we actually hit on him, there is a group of pietists often referred to as the Moravian pietists who became somewhat influential in what's known as the Northampton Revival that began fading out by 1735. There was a Dutch Reformed minister who came to New York from Germany by the name of Theodorus Jacobus, I think is how we're going to say it. Um, And then I don't even know. How do you say the last name? Freilinghausen. Freilinghausen. Boy, that was pretty good. Say it again. Freilinghausen. All right. We'll go with that. That's what I'm going with. Um, When he arrived, he almost immediately began to stir things up. Uh, He was part of the Protestant renewal movement that was based in Europe, in which there was a strong desire to see true, heartfelt religion. And it's important for you to remember that this was a day in which religion was so intertwined with the state, and so the religion was not really an issue of the heart. Really, it was just a political thing, right? You're born into a nation like Germany, so you're Lutheran. Uh, The renewal movement sought to put the true conversion back into the center of faithful religion. So when, how did we? Freilinghausen. Freilinghausen 
came to New York, he started to warn against pastors who did not give sufficient evidence of true conversion. And so he started preaching much on the need for the new birth in John chapter 3. Uh, much like the Puritans, the Pietists saw that the Protestant Reformation was not yet over and therefore not fully realized. And as a result, they sought to put their faith to work, and there was a major emphasis on faith and obedience. So these Morovians were known for traveling all over the world, infiltrating colonies and preaching obedience as the true sign of the new birth. In fact, it was under this Moravian, Moravian preaching that John and Charles Wesley came to faith. Many people don't realize that John Wesley was a pastor and evangelist prior to being saved, um, and, and that's actually something that's worth exploring someday. Uh, but he was actually a pastor and wasn't even a believer. Uh, but one who was majorly influenced was none other than good old George Whitfield, who was a very young preacher at the time. In fact, by the age of 23, George Whitfield was a household name in London, where it's recorded that he uh, preached to more, more than 100 times in only five months by the end of 1737. And so with the encouragement of his good Oxford friend, uh, friends, John and Charles Wesley, uh, Whitfield headed for Georgia, to begin preaching to the various colonies. And he came to Savannah and only lasted about five months there. The Wesley brothers were there originally, but hastily left, leaving the mission there in despair. And so Whitfield decided to start an orphanage to try to improve conditions there. But after raising money, he stayed only three months. By the way, on, on the, as an aside, I think what he was trying to do was basically do a repeat of how things were done back in Europe, because there was, I mean, George Mueller and his famous orphanages, there was this huge need for orphanages, and it was actually something that worked there, and I think that they tried to transplant plant that and and do it again here in the States. It wasn't necessary. Uh, I, I, just an aside, but I think about how just because something works in one location doesn't mean it's going to work in another location, because the method is not really what's key. So anyhow, he left back home from England, and it was at this point that he began to launch his preaching ministry as we have come to know it today. Now, once he landed back there in England, he began to explore a new preaching style that was starting to be practiced in other parts of the Isles. So he was, he was blocked from many of the pulpits in England, um, due to the hostile nature of the ministers. Again, it was a very political environment. Yeah, um, well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so so as a result, he started to try his hand at open-air preaching in February of 1739. And in literally one week's time, over 10,000 people showed up to hear him preach. And then in three months, as many as 60,000 came to hear him there in London. So part of that was due to the nature of his his oratory and his delivery, uh, it was very unique. Um, he was almost an actor in his preaching. Uh, he would actually travel around with a mini stage and a pulpit. Um, and so he was not, I guess what you could just call a preacher scholar like Jonathan Edwards, but rather he was considered a preacher actor. Um, that is not to say it wasn't genuine. Right. Um, it was just the style and the method he used. Um, so Whitfield's young assistant, a man by the name of Cornelius Winter stated this. He said, I hardly ever knew him go through a sermon without weeping. Sometimes he exceedingly wept, stamped loudly and passionately, and was frequently so overcome that for a few seconds, you would suspect he could never recover. 
and when he did, nature required some little time to compose himself. Sarah Edwards, the wife of Jonathan Edwards, wrote this about him. She said, he is a born orator. You have already heard of his deep-toned yet clear and melodious voice. Oh, it is perfect music to listen to, that alone. You remember that David Hume thought it worth going 20 miles to hear him speak. In Garrick, who was an actor who just envied Whitfield's gifts, he had said he could move men to tears in pronouncing the word Mesopotamia. <laughs> uh, it is truly wonderful to see what a spell this preacher often casts over an audience by proclaiming the simplest truths of the Bible. I have seen upwards of a thousand people hang on his words with breathless silence, broken only by an occasional half-suppressed sob. A prejudiced person, I know, might say that this is all theatrical artifice and display, but not so will anyone who think who has seen and known him. He is a very devout and godly man, and his only aim seems to be to reach and influence men the best way. He speaks from the heart, all aglow with love, and pours out a torrent of eloquence, which is almost irresistible. So, while his style was obviously unique um, and could appear to some as overly dramatic, it was still his genuine character, it would seem. So, the result is that he stood in stark contrast to the stodgy sort of licensed preachers of his day who could only preach in a manner that would not cost them their licenses. And he labeled those men uh, that famous velvet-mouthed preachers. Um, and so, as a result, he didn't spend his ministry in the pulpits of churches, but primarily in the streets and the fields in which thousands would attend. Uh, it's kind of interesting because he was be the opposite of like Sinclair Ferguson. I remember going to a pastor's conference that Piper had put on, and he had just had, I don't think it was Piper, it was somebody else who was extremely animated and a very very, very much like this, really strong, powerful speaking skills and, a, you know, a full range of emotion. And then after that, we had a lot of singing. Of that. that was very emotional. And then Sinclair, who was the keynote speaker, got up to speak. And now it's this stodgy Scottish uh, theologian. And uh, he made a passing joke about you know, when Scottish Presbyterians get excited, uh, they like put their hands in their pockets or something <laughs> like that. But, you know, totally opposite. And yet you you did not doubt that Sinclair had a love for the people, even though it was very dry and, and theological, as opposed to the other guy who was extremely uh, loud and theatrical. But the content was what made them both very endearing to listen to. Uh, and I think that's kind of what's going on with Whitfield. Yeah. Um, now, the tremendous effectiveness of Whitfield, however, was bound up in his urging for a true new birth. And so as a result, his influence and success as a preacher was not so much in the manner in which he delivered the message, but the message itself. Uh, this is consistent with whatever we have seen so far in true revival. Many could study the preaching ministry of Whitfield and walk away with that conclusion that his effectiveness was in his style and method. But that's to miss the message of the man and remember that God's great means of conversion and revival is always bound up with a message never the means. And that's something we want, really want to push hard in this whole series. It, don't get caught up in the means. It's the message. It's difficult to convey how fresh his message would have been unless you understand how dead the politicization of Christianity had become. 
He was not calling for a mere signing onto orthodoxy or morality, nor was he interested in moving his hearers to a mere emotional response. Rather, he appealed to his listeners to examine as to whether or not they had truly experienced the new birth. And so Whitfield stated, the sum of the matter is this, Christianity includes morality as grace uh, does reason. But if we are only mere moralists, if we are not inwardly wrought upon and changed by the powerful operations of the Spirit, and our moral actions proceed from a principle of a new nature, however we may call ourselves Christian, it is to be feared we shall be found naked at the great day. And in the number of those who vainly depend upon their own righteousness and not on the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to and inherent in them as necessary to their eternal salvation. It is not enough to turn from profaneness to civility, but thou must turn from civility to godliness. Not only some, but all things must become new in thy soul. It will profit thee but little to do many things, if yet someone, some one things thou lackest. In short, thou must not be only an almost but an altogether new creature, or in vain thou hopest for the saving interest in Christ Jesus. That's, that's a good quote. That's a great quote. Yeah, now, now many other features of his preaching made him unique, but an important one was his Calvinism. His preaching was also practical and invitational. And so like Edwards, he was deliberate in addressing both the head and the heart of his people. So he sought to apply the doctrines of Calvinism to everyday life and never failed to then summon his listener. So here's a quote, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You know not, but he came to save you. Do not go and quarrel with God's decrees and say, if I am a reprobate, I shall be damned. If I am elected, I shall be saved. And therefore I will do nothing. What have you to do with God's decrees? Secret things belong to him. It is your business to give all diligence to make your calling and election sure. If there are but few who find the way that leads to life, strive to be some of them. You know not, but you may be in the number of those few, and that your striving may be the means which God intends to bless to give you entrance in. So there you can see he's certainly coming from a Calvinistic perspective, um, but he doesn't let his listeners use those doctrines to find an excuse. Um, his preaching was also characterized, and you can hear it in that quote, as exceedingly invitational. Uh, perhaps the most unique feature of his preaching was his evangelistic zeal. Um, in urging his listeners to become born again, he'd force them to examine themselves and to not presume upon lifeless religion of the day. Um, and because the culture was so radically identified as thoroughly Christian, he warned his listeners that they lived in dangerous times. So as, as Whitfield's preaching ministry experienced tremendous popularity, his crowds only increased. He naturally became excited about revival. And so as a result, in 1739, Whitfield wrote to Jonathan Edwards, seek our asking to see if he could visit the scene of the famous revival from 1734. Edwards wrote back seeking to quell Whitfield's expectation as the Northampton revival was essentially over. That's kind of sad. He, he has to say, yeah, but it's not like you're coming to hall hallowed ground here. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, it might break your heart. Um, 
In October of 1740, then, Whitfield arrived at Nor- in Northampton to stay with the Edwards daily. He wanted to learn from Edwards, and both men were deeply affected by this meeting. Uh, Edwards cautioned Whitfield, the younger minister, to not be so hasty in judging fellow pastors as being unconverted. The result of this meeting was that Whitfield returned to his own congregation, urging them to not be deceived by what might perhaps be fleeting religious enthusiasm. Uh, Whitfield also understood this well as he was starting to see some of those smitten with his preaching already losing their affections for Christ. Yeah, now part of that warning was coming out of the controversy developing at Yale. Um, so after Ed, uh, Whitfield had finished his preaching tour there in the New England area, uh, he had asked one of his friends, by, a man by the name of Gilbert Tennant, to follow in his wake and continue building upon his work there. So when Tennant arrived at Yale to start preaching, there was a, one student there named Samuel Hopkins who testified to the power of Tennant's preaching. Um, thousands had come under conviction that God hated their sin and would consign them to hell if they did not repent. And even some Yale professors confessed that they had not been born again until he started preaching. And so Hopkins identified some students whose zeal stood out. One of them was a man by the name of David Brainerd, who, when approached, admitted that he had no, quote, religious affection. Um, He was Christian in name only. And so the result is that Brainerd retreated to his prayer closet Uh, where it's recorded that he sensed God's presence in a new way. And so Brainerd explained that he needed to be born again, and he needed to hate his sin and delight in the righteousness obtained in Christ. So as this revival grew, um, so did its detractors. Um, Brainerd was eventually expelled his junior year from Yale when he accused a tutor of having no more grace than a chair. That's a quote. Um, (laughs) What a delight. (laughs) Many, many others began to accuse present day ministers of not being born again because they did not evidence quote, religious affections. Um, But isn't that common of, of young people? Yeah. It's just, you know, you're not feeling enough, showing it enough. Um, But there's also some issues, which is why maybe in part that was a fair assessment. Edwards began to preach, though, on the importance of religious affections as a result, and as as well as visible displays of conversion. So there needed to be a hatred for sin, there needed to be a, an evidence of obedience to Christ, and that, of course, fueled a controversy all the more as to what constitutes true religion. And so there was a great divide that was beginning to take place, much of which was catalyzed by the revivalistic preacher's connected with both Whitfield and Edwards. So by 1745 then, the revival in New England, uh, in other words, the first Great Awakening, had faded. However, not before it permanently altered America. Uh, The revival led to a renewed effort to evangelize Native Americans, something that which stopped after King Philip's War several decades earlier. Revival had even broken out among the Montauk, uh, which was an Indian tribe on Long Island, in September of 1742. In February of 1743, David Brainerd visited that revival, and when he died of tuberculosis in 1747, he left behind a journal of of his experiences as a missionary to the Native Americans. Jonathan Edwards eventually edited the journal and became the best-selling work to subsequent generations of missionaries, which in turn fueled them to take the gospel to all four corners of the globe. So this first Great Awakening was 
also transformed the African-American attitudes toward Christianity. Ministers who supported the revival came to be labeled as new lights. Um, they preached to an audiences that included both whites and blacks. In fact, many congregations accepted their very first black members. This was met with very mixed responses, and many slave owners became very angry at this. Regardless, though, there were surprising reports recorded all throughout the region during this time. In fact, one Boston slave owner reported walking in on his sleigh, preaching to himself, imitating Whitfield's dramatic style. The owner, who was no fan of revival, was so amused that he called together his friends for some after-dinner entertainment. The weekly history, uh, which is, was a newspaper, uh, recorded this. And it says, supplying his friends with pipes and glasses all around, he instructed his slave to mount a stool in the center of the room and preach as he had the day before. As he began, the company laughed heartily, but when he, want, uh, he spoke against blaspheming the Holy Spirit and proclaiming the necessity of the new birth, the Negro spoke with such authority that it struck the gentleman to the heart. To their host's dismay, the men began to listen intently, and many, as a result of that day's entertainment, became pious, sober men, which is yeah, a, interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's a great story, and it's also a, a story of great shame, too. Right. Yeah. 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 So that's, that's the first great awakening. Um, there's a lot more that can be said on it, but it's... There's only so much conducive for a podcast. The point again, though, with Whitfield is that while he was opposite of Edward's style, the content was the same. Remember, Edwards was essentially manuscript. He kept his face down and just delivered in a sort of monotone way, um, whereas Whitfield is, you know, putting on dramatics. Um, so he, he spoke much of sin. He spoke of the necessity to be made righteous through the forgiveness and new birth found in Jesus Christ. And it's an important lesson, again, for those who think that methodology is what matters most. Uh, we would say it is not. Rather, it is always the message. And so when God decides then to move, he will work exclusively through his ordained means, which is always the gospel. And it is a message which always makes known the reality of sin, uh, confession, the necessity to repent, placing one's faith in that finished work of Jesus Christ alone. So, Next time, we'll t dip our toes into the second Great Awakening. Uh, but until then, make sure to tune in, join the conversation. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the first Great Awakening and George Whitfield. Don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, and review. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And tell a friend. Mm -hmm.